everybody, this is Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and it's a privilege to have with us Glenn McGullivray, who's the Managing Director of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss and Reduction. Glenn, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this because I know that you spend a lot of time responding to media, answering their questions, and the Institute seems to be very, very busy with the work and the resources that you produce. Why don't you tell us about your role and your journey and how you came to be there? Sure. Well, I've uh, been associated with the Canadian insurance and reinsurance industry for over 30 years, and prior to joining the Institute, I was with uh, Swiss Reinsurance Company Canada. So Swiss Re is uh, one of the largest reinsurers in the world, of course. And they help uh, help um, back insurance companies uh, against uh, failure, basically in case of a of a large shock loss sort of thing. So I've been writing and doing work in the area of natural hazards and natural disaster research for quite some time, and then moved over to uh, the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction uh, just over 16 years ago. We're funded by the Canadian Property and Casualty Insurance Industry, or the non-life insurance industry, as it's known elsewhere in the world. We have basically every, almost every major insurance company in Canada belongs to us. And uh, we do work on behalf of them and on behalf of Canadian society to uh, reduce the impact of severe weather and earthquakes on Canadians. So the, the term catastrophic, why is that an important term? Why are you using that? It's really the extremes that we're interested in, right? Um, it's not the run-of-the-mill day-to-day things that cause concern, um, you know, the, the odd tree down on the car over here or the odd basement flooding over there. Uh, it's those extreme events that uh, cause most grief. And those are the, the rarest of events, but the ones that cause most impact, including on people, on property, on economies, mm. and that sort of thing. So it's working to kind of uh, reduce the impact of those uh, events that are not all that common, but have huge kick to them. Right. And how has COVID changed the landscape over the last year and a half, two years? At our institute, uh, hasn't had great impact. We've all been working from home and we've been quite productive. Right. Um, I think it's been challenging out there in terms of response to disasters. Um, we have seen, for example, wildfire crews in California get hit uh, wide with, with COVID amongst them. Mm. Uh, and so it's very difficult for for those that work in quite uh, tight confines like wildfire crews. Um, and I don't think we had, a, you know, a, an instance of an outbreak in a wildfire crew, but it was always top of mind. Um, uh, lots of evacuations occurring this year in Canada. We had a really active wildfire season in British Columbia and now a very, very, uh, probably the costliest disaster in Canadian history is currently unfolding in BC with some flooding and mudslides. So lots of evacuations and COVID of course, there's a really great concern when you have, again, a lot of people in tight confines, like in disaster mm. um, centers and that sort of thing. So a bit of a concern there. Uh, some resources being taken away from, you know, natural disasters and, and pointed over to to the COVID uh, issue. And so I think COVID's had numerous impacts on uh, the, the disaster risk reduction work here in Canada. Just want to pick up on that that idea of a natural disaster. Do you think that disasters are natural? There's a huge discussion out there in the world about uh, you know stopping using that term, and I would agree with it. Um, the hazard is what the what what's natural. So, you know, the rain falling down, mm -hmm. the earth shaking, the wind blowing. Uh, that's the hazard. 
-hmm. we can have very little impact on those. We can prevent wildfires in certain circumstances, but we can't prevent an earthquake, for example. Right. When that translates into damage to property or injury to people, that's not natural. That's not a normal thing. We built that environment. Humans built that environment. Mm. It's not Mother Nature's fault. It's our fault for either putting something in harm's way, building it improperly, uh, putting too much assets in, in uh, risky places and so on and so forth. So there's really a move on to stop using that term. I still use it from time to time. Nobody's wrapped my, my knuckles yet, but I'm sure uh, somebody will shortly. You had a really interesting interview with a panel in 2019 about the flooding. Uh, and that seemed to be a really significant or catastrophic event with the opportunity to cause a lot of harm. And then yesterday, you're, you're in the papers talking about we should stop winging it. So has nothing changed? I don't think a lot has changed. Um, and I don't think we're much different than most places in the world. Um, mm. So on the, the first part, the, the first panel you were talking about, uh, one of my themes of a couple of years ago was enough is enough. Um, we have to get people out of harm's way. And that means mm. basically relocating people that are in very high risk uh, flood zones. And um, I got tremendous support from that, that messaging. I did uh, a lot of media that year. This was after flooding in uh, the national capital region of Canada and also in the province of New Brunswick mm -hmm. and other places. Um, nobody came out and told me I was heartless or anything. Everybody kind of agreed that, that enough is enough. It's not really fair or reasonable to have all Canadians paying for somebody mm -hmm. who chooses to live uh, you know, with a nice river view. And when we see repeated flood events over and over and over again, we just can't keep this up. It's not sustainable. So that was the one message of, of a couple of years ago. The message of yesterday in, in my op-ed in the uh, Globe and Mail, Canada's national paper, uh, we talked about um, how we believe disasters are now systemic in Canada. They're not just these unique one-offs that come from, you know, once in a while and that, uh, oh, you know, we'll just, we'll wing it. We'll just kind of, you know, put together an ad hoc committee. We'll, we'll send in the army. Uh, we'll put up sandbank, uh, sandbags for flooding, which is very symbolic of how we tend to treat flooding. That is, you know, very temporary, temporarily. Um, our message, uh, my co-writer and I, was that we, these are systemic now. These are part of society. They're part of the fabric of life here in Canada. We can't just continue to do this ad hoc approach, a fragmented approach, right. throwing together some sort of a recovery committee and figuring it out as we go. It has to be institutionalized how we deal with disasters. That, that means a lot of different things, um, but it starts with a, a different mindset. Hmm. So the response from government, do you think it's been lacking? And the data that's available to the public for them to make decisions, has that changed since the 2019 interview that you gave? It hasn't. Um, I was on a big call yesterday, actually, with a large number of people discussing these sorts of issues. And and, and one of the topics was, uh, was data and hmm. the availability of that data for the public so the public can make decisions. And uh, we have very poor data in Canada. Um, and, uh, and what we do have, we don't make public. So we have a big problem here with quality flood maps. For example, we have some communities yeah. that have new high quality flood maps, and we have some communities with, uh, decades old flood maps that were partly hand-drawn. Um, somebody made the point that, um, 
some of the areas that just flooded in British Columbia had flood maps that were uh, produced on computers that were weaker than the cell phone that's in my pocket right now. Um, if I were in the market to buy a home in Canada and I wanted to find out if I was on a floodplain or if I was at risk of flooding, it would be a very difficult task uh, for me to do. It's hard to get uh, access to flood maps. When you do get access to them, um, they may be very old and you may not understand them. I think it's very unreasonable to hand a flood map to a, an average person and say, here, go to it. Uh, th these are complex things. And, and you know, mm. people, they don't understand things like return periods and, and things of that nature. We have to get better at um, providing good information, disclosing it, making it available out there, perhaps making it available at the time a, whole, a, a home is being sold Right. So that the potential buyer can make an informed decision about whether they want to uh, still purchase that home or not. There's a lot of things that we have to look at, I think. I lived for seven years in Indonesia, and it's just prone to flooding. Um, in Jakarta, it's lower than sea level in many areas. And so it was quite common to just open up Google and see the flood map. Um, on Google Maps, and we could just drag the timeline and see it come in and go out, and we could identify where it was happening, where it's likely to happen. It seemed quite an easy thing to do because the data was readily accessible and people were reporting, and you could see the change over time. Is that not happening in Canada? Uh, it doesn't appear to be, no. Um, one of the problems we have in Canada is that uh, flooding and flood, the, the, the peril of flood and waterways and that sort of thing are largely the responsibility of the provinces. Uh, we have 10 provinces uh, and, and three territories. Okay. The provinces and territories then push responsibility down to the local level. So uh, we have, a first of all, a lot of small communities that don't have the resources to flood map properly. We have things that are all fragmented up. So nobody's looking at things from a watershed perspective. They're looking at it just from their own local perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and so we get this real fragmented mishmash where the federal government's responsible for a small amount of things like flooding on their properties and flooding with First Nations communities. Um, but that's about it. Then the provinces are responsible for uh, the big picture uh, of flooding, wildfire, emergency management, that sort of thing. But they then push it down to, to the uh, local governments. And then you have private property owners that have dams and dikes and weirs on their property mm. and corporations. And right. it's such a fragmented mishmash. It is just really hard to get any traction on the issue at all. You mentioned about First Nations, um, I guess, reservations or parcels of land that are controlled in a different way or supported differently. I guess that brings up the question, are there reasons why people choose to live in areas where they are more prone to disasters happening or catastrophe? I've always said that people live in dangerous areas for one of two reasons, either because they can afford to or because they can afford not to. Um, so we have a lot of people living on beautiful riverfront properties in Canada, uh, high income individuals with nice homes, and the government rolls in puts in a levy to protect the community and that homeowner is angry because the river view has, has been destroyed. And we've had at least two instances of that happening in Canada. You have people living on the base of snowy mountains near, near ski lodges and you have people mm. living on the coast of oceans because it's beautiful. And those are all instances where they can afford to live in those places. And then you have people that are living in dangerous floodplains or at the base of um, deforested mountains where mudslides are, are very probable 
or uh, things of that nature. So it's it's quite a an interesting dichotomy, but we have an awful lot of people that live in dangerous places because they really have no other choice. Right. And who's really responsible and how do you how do you bring change in a sensitive and mindful way? It's a challenge. Uh, when you have people that, for example, have the ability to evacuate in the case of an event or have mm -hmm. the ability to move away in the case of an event, there's a whole set of tools and communications that you can make with those people. When you have people that don't have those resources, um, those same tools don't work. And you have to first you know, understand why. Why? Why do the people live there? What resources do they have at their disposal? How do you get to them? How can you communicate to them? And, mm. and what government resources can help uh, to maybe get them out of harm's way or to build resilience in their properties uh, and so on and so forth. So two different sets of challenges. It begins with understanding, though. Um, for evacuations, for example, you always hear people say, oh, why didn't those people evacuate? Are they stupid? Well, not everybody has the, the capacity to evacuate. Right. I mean, there was a, a you know research done after uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and they found out that a lot of people couldn't evacuate because they had elderly sick parents. They had right. small children. Uh, mm -hmm. They were uh, below income, didn't have a credit card to their name, didn't have a vehicle to their name. Mm -hmm. um, so on and so forth. You can't just assume that everybody has the equal resources and ability to to evacuate or to move out of a dangerous area. Mm. So whose responsibility is it to reduce those barriers or remove them or increase equity? Well, I think um, disaster risk reduction requires an all-of-society approach. Uh, in those types mm -hmm. of questions, government, I think, has to lead the way. But there are others that can help as well, including NGOs, uh, various yeah. charities, various private industry, including the insurance industry, which often gets shut out of these discussions just because people don't think about bringing them in and talking to them. I've, I've mm -hmm. been at many discussions where I, I've suggested that we bring in insurers and people go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. Um, so we do need that all of society approach. But in some cases, you know, there's more weight towards government and in other cases, there's more weight to towards private industry or whatever, but we do need to work together. And I think a big picture plan helps. Glenn, you do a lot, you know, you're, you're leading the, the um, Institute. You're also writing a lot and being interviewed a lot. <clears throat> we didn't talk about this and I didn't mention it in our notes, but how do you manage your time? How do you keep your energy level up and get all this done? Well, I think like my boss says, uh, when you love what you're doing, uh, it's not work. And so, you know, we are working hard to protect Canadians uh, and others who will listen. Um, and so that's that fills me up with a lot of energy and a lot of hope and uh, and helps you go on. At the same time, you want to beat your head against the wall sometimes because of the lack of action. But uh, that's that's a different story. I think you have to really concentrate on the wins right. uh, and, and understand that this disaster risk reduction is a slow process. Um, and, you know, when you're doing exhilarating things like getting an essay in the national paper or, or appearing on national television and talking about disastrous reduction, it's, uh, it's more of a shot in the arm than it is uh, a tiring uh, thing to do. So uh, it helps to, to love what you do, I guess. So just as we wrap up, Glenn, what would you say to aspiring emergency managers or people who maybe want to transition into your particular sector? What should they do? What should they prepare or learn or courses they should take or experiences? 
I think um, uh, certainly uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you'll never be out of work. I don't think, um, you know, as societies grow and get larger and sometimes richer, we're going to see more disasters uh, in the future, uh, largely, you know, due to climate change, but for other reasons as well. Um, we're just bigger targets. Our cities are becoming bigger. So we're going to see more of the event, these events in the future, and we're going to need more experts in that area. Uh, more and more, we're taking that people side. We're understanding the people side of disasters, and you should never forget about people. It's all about people. Um, you can replace a home. You can replace, um, you know, uh, things that were, were lost in a flood. But, um, you know, when you, when you think about, about the people that are behind this, the lives, culture, mm -hmm. yep. uh, you think about uh, marginalized people and really, mm -hmm. you know, disasters and uh, climate change. Uh, I say it's like a heat-seeking missile. It seeks out marginalized people and communities and um, and uh, does the greatest damage to them. So never forget that side of things. Uh, it is all about people. And uh, the more research and, and uh, the more courses you can take into that area, you know, disasters in society, for example, right. um, is very helpful. The other thing is that we're seeing an increase in uh, interest in the area of behavioral economics and decision science. So mm. finding out what makes people tick in the face of all of this stuff? How do you get to people? How do you convince them, for example, to make their home more resilient to a disaster? We find that just giving them educational material doesn't really work. We have to understand how they think about these things and how do you get to those people? And largely you get to them by getting to the people that are around them. And so more and more, um, it's important to understand uh, what makes people tick and how they think about disasters and how to think about mitigation and that sort of thing, because how you think they should think about it is not how they really think about it. Hmm. That's really wise. Glenn, really thank you so much for giving your time today. I do appreciate it. And amongst all your busy schedule, um, our students will certainly appreciate it. And I've got with the show notes, the link to your um, LinkedIn account. Are there other ways that people can get hold of you if they want to reach out to you? Uh, we're at twi on Twitter as well. I'm I'm really active on both Twitter and LinkedIn, but uh, LinkedIn's great too. But at ICLR Canada is our Twitter handle. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Please don't go anywhere as we wrap up. Um, everyone else who's watching and our students particularly and those emergency managers in our network, um, if you're like most emergency managers, you're always doing training. You've got that big binder or folder of all the courses and the training and the certificates you've done, but sometimes they don't translate to an academic degree or a master's degree. Through our accreditation in the UK and with Texas A&M University System, we'd love to help you get credit for everything you've done and help you gain your higher education. So thank you so much for being with us. Glenn? And thank you, everyone, who's going to be watching the recording as well. I really appreciate your time, and we'll see you again on the next video cast.